Hi, this is Michael Buffer, and welcome to the Box Hard Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mikey Garcia. It's the monster from the swamps, Regis Ruguru Program. Hey, what's up? This is King Carlos Molina, former IBF world champ. This is Michael, the bounty hunter, 2012 Olympian and your people's champ. This is Charlie Edwards, flyweight champion of the world. This is Fast Eddie Chambers, and you're listening to the Box Hard Podcast with my main man, Joey Coastman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 220 of the Box Hard Podcast. First and foremost, Happy New Year. I am your host, Joey Coastman. I'm joined as ever in this this New Year's podcast by Mr. Ryaz Sumra, the infamous Mr. Ryaz Sumra. Ayaz, how are you doing? Happy New Year to you, Joey. I'm very good. Yourself? Very good, my friend. Happy New Year to you. And like I say, to our listeners, um, it is going to be a, you know, a, an interesting podcast. It's one I've been looking forward to doing for a couple of weeks because we're going to basically discuss the review part in part one and um, we're going to bring in our first, well, our, our only guest of, of this week's show. It's going to be another sit-down, in-depth um, interview with just one guest this week. It's obviously going to be, uh, I'm sure you already know if you're listening to this, it's going to be with the the free weight world champion, uh, one of the one of the only free weight world champions Britain has ever had. It's going to be Duke McKenzie, MBE. So that interview will be um, will be a real good one. Like I say, it's a, it's a pretty long interview. So just the one interview on this week's show, like last week, another sit down interview. Obviously last week the Christmas special with Andre Berto. I've heard good feedback on that. So um, thanks a lot for that feedback. But yeah, let's get into it. We're also going to be discussing the knockout of the year and the fighter of the year, the fight of the year, stuff like that. Um, But yeah, let's get straight on here with the review part. Not too much, of course, to go over. There's going to be no preview part whatsoever either. Um, Anyway, let's start at the Palais des Sports in Marseille in France. Just one fight to mention over here. Um, Arsene Goulamirian, now 26-0. It was a successful defense for him. Um, of his WBA Super World Cruiserweight title against Konstantin Begeneru, who's now 14-1. and um, Begeneru actually retired on his store after 10 rounds, but Arsene Gulamirian was winning the fight. Again, these two guys, both undefeated, um, both kind of been shoehorned up the rankings into these big fights, and honestly, I still don't really know who they are, as embarrassing as that may sound. Uh, moving out now, though, to the State Farm Arena in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Let's start over here with the undercard. Um, a big upset, actually, on the undercard. Former world champion. Did he actually hold the belt for a while? I think he did before he got dethroned by Caleb Plant. I don't think that was for the vacant title. So, yeah, former world champion, who... Uh, Jose was Katagai now 29 and 4. He was in search of win number 30. It wasn't to be at all. He took on Lionel Thompson. Lionel Thompson, a guy with a record of 21 and 5 going in. Whose Katagai was down in the first round. Thompson was deducted a point as well at some point in the fight for holding. Um, a major upset, like I say, was Katagai since losing to Caleb Plant. 
um, I don't know how many fights he's had. I think he's only had one fight and then this one here making it two. But really hasn't looked like the most um, avoided fighter that he was when James Degal vacated in order to not face him. I understand it wasn't going to be a big, big money fight and stuff like that. But boy, oh boy, um, you know, he was such a danger, man. And it's, it's very strange to actually see him losing to a guy like Lionel Thompson. Credit to him now, 22-5. and five. Um Moving up the card to the bigger and better fights, I guess, on that on that bill. I'm going to talk now about Javonte Davis against Uriokis Gamboa. Obviously, Davis going in with the perfect record, 22-0. It was for the vacant WBA World Lightweight title, obviously. Davis came in overweight initially, but then he had a couple of hours to make the weight. He did make the weight. Uriokis Gamboa now 30-3. and free. It wasn't to be his night. He was down in the second round, the eighth round, and the twelfth round. Um, he didn't really look like the beast that we, you know, that we come to expect to see, really, Javante Davis. Um, like I say, he did drop the guy a bunch of times, and it was it was crazy, because um, Gamboa, like I say, once a real a real promising prospect at, at one stage of his, of his career, I think he's up there in age, I think he just turned 38 a few days before the fight or something like that, so he's up there in age, but... The amount of times he's been down, I think they were saying, he. I, I calculated 12 times he'd been down in his career, but I'm sure the commentary said he's actually been down 14 times. That's crazy. Um, and again, he was down another three times, so that means he's been knocked down 17 times. That's just nuts. But anyway, um, the actual fight itself, I mean, Javonte Davis... You know, started started okay, started fast. Like I say, had had Gamboa down in the second round, and when Gamboa went down, it was an odd one because he was, you know, he was half looking like he was gonna, uh, dare I say, quit. Um, you know, he, he didn't look comfortable in there. He was he was pointing at his shoe. It seemed like something was up with his shoe. Referee, I think it was Jack Reese. Um, I felt probably should have investigated the matter a little bit further, but he didn't really seem to be bothered. Um, you know, he came back out, Gamboa. Um, you know, looking a bit weird, really. I mean, his his feet were not as bouncy as they should have been. It turns out after everything, you know, after he's been and seen a doctor that he ruptured his Achilles. Obviously, he was able to continue right up until the 12th and final round where he got TKO'd, so credit to him. But yeah, Javante Davis just didn't seem like that monster that we've seen many times. Gamboa showed a much better chin than perhaps we'd all given him credit for. And perhaps Javante Davis has you know, has has just tested the water there at lightweight and isn't the puncher that he is or has been at the lower weight. So I definitely think he should move back down to 130. Um, if he is to stay at lightweight, though, I think that should be his ceiling. I don't think he should go up to 140. He's way too small for 140. Um, so, yeah, there's a few fights I'd like to see him involved in at lightweight. Obviously, you know, the fights like... Um, Tiafimo Lopez. I'd like to see him in there with Lomachenko, of course. I'd like to see him in there with Devin Haney, perhaps. There's lots and lots of fights I'd like to see him involved in. But whether or not they'll happen is a completely different um, a completely different thing. So all the best to Javante Davis. People won't remember, I'm guessing, too far back, but he is a friend of the show. We once had him on. Um, he's now 23 and 0. He's the new WBA lightweight world champion. That makes him a three-time world champion in two weight divisions. Uh, moving up the card once again to the, I think this one was the co-main. 
Jean Pascal now 35 and 6 with a draw. A split decision victory for him over 12 rounds against Badu Jack, former former world champion, um, former two-weight world champion, now 22 and 3 with three draws. It was for the WBC Silver Light Heavyweight title and the WBA World Light Heavyweight title. Jack down in the fourth round, Pascal down in the twelfth round. An unbelievable fight, by the way. Um again, I I kind of was Scoring it partially, I'll get I'll get to it. Let's start with the first round. Um, I'd say even though the best punch of the first round was a straight right hand landed by Badu Jack, I still felt like Pascal outworked him. Pascal did get a little bit wild at times, but he looked dangerous at the same time, and he landed some great body shots as well. Definitely a Pascal round for me. Round two, Badu Jack would fall short a lot with his attacks. He did the same in round one, to be honest. Um, it wasn't so much the elusiveness of Pascal. It was more the poor judge of distance from Jack. And again, for me, Pascal won the round. Jack didn't really look hurt at any point. But Pascal seemed to, to really move Badu Jack back when he hit him. I mean, even, even when he hit him on the arms, you know, the shots looked heavy. And they'd really move Jack back, you know. He looked real heavy-handed in there. But like I say, Jack wasn't hurt at all. He, he just seemed to be struggling to work out the awkward style of Pascal. In the in the third round, again, for me, I'd say Pascal won the round. Um... Jack did seem to momentarily hurt Pascal late in the round, and Pascal had to hold, but then, you know, he, he managed to actually finish quite well, Pascal, and, you know, Jack's good work, the moments he was having, they were just few and far between at that point, the more consistent of the two was definitely Pascal for me. In the fourth round, it started off as a big round for Badu Jack, he was beating Pascal up, he was hurting him, but then literally in the last 10 seconds of the round, he gets caught with a looping right hook to the temple, and he completely, completely was out on his feet, um, he really lost his balance, and down he went, a 10-8 round there, um, you know, which, which is a big swing, because like I say, Jack was probably winning that round until that shot landed he did get back up and the bell rang straight away so you know he kind of got saved by the bell um the fifth round for me another round for pascal the sixth round i actually gave it to jack i think that was the first round i'd given him at that point it was um it was a close round i felt like it probably could have gone either way it was a little bit of a sympathy kind of round actually giving it to jack it really could have gone either way um round seven another close round i was i was edging it to jack but then again pascal just finished quite strong in the last kind of 10 seconds or so and he might have just about snatched it so I did end up giving it to Pascal but the pace definitely dropped from Pascal he did seem a little bit tired to me at that point round 8 great round for Badu Jack the the straight shots were, were working for him again and again um, he also had great success at one point with his left and right hooks when he when he had Pascal on the ropes. I was thinking, could the tide be turning at that point? Um, it seemed to, I guess. Ninth round was a was a jack round. The tenth round, my stream crashed, so I didn't see that one at all. Um, the eleventh round, I gave to Badu Jack, and the twelfth round, like I say, a ten eight round for Badu Jack. Down went Pascal. It was a real heavy knockdown. He got back up, but he's he's. Uh, his head just seemed super glued, and he couldn't he couldn't move it at all. He couldn't get out of the way of Jack's punches. So a big, big 10-8 round there for Jack at the very last part of the fight. But um, that 10th that round that I didn't score, when I totaled it all up, if I would have scored it to Badu Jack, it would have been a draw. 113-113 on my card. And if I scored it to... Um, to, to Jean Pascal, and then it would have been one fourteen, one twelve. Um, I believe that's how it how it ended up. So I actually had it quite similar to the judges. Obviously, it ended up like I say in a split decision. Two judges had it one fourteen, one twelve to um, 
to to John Pascal, just like I would have had it if I gave him that round that I missed. And the other judge had it 114-112 to Badu Jack. I didn't see that. I was trying to score it as fair as possible, and I definitely felt like um, either Badu Jack... Oh, sorry, either, either Jean Pascal deserved to win, or at the very best for Badu Jack, it would have been a draw. Um, obviously, Badu Jack already already been on the receiving end of a few dodgy decisions. He didn't need a fourth draw, but unfortunately, it ended with a loss for him. Um, I actually thought he'd win the fight quite comfortably on points before the fight, but like I say, um, this boxing game is very, very hard to get your predictions right in such brilliant fights, and it was a brilliant fight. It was a late contender, actually, for fight of the year, which we'll be getting onto in part two. But um, that's it for the review part of the show. Just before we wrap up part one, the final thing to do is to welcome our one and only guest on this unofficial New Year podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the former freeweight world champion. It is, of course, Mr. Duke McKenzie, MBE. Duke, welcome to the show. Good evening, champ. How are you? Very good, my friend. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing really well, thanks. Great to, hear really it. Well. Great to hear it, Duke. So I want to start off just really with a typical question as an as a, as a opener, really. Um, how did you get into boxing in the very beginning, Duke? Obviously, the family's quite famous for the boxing. Tell me how it started. Yeah, just already fell in. Uh, older brother started. I'm one of, excuse me, I'm one of seven. I'm one of seven kids, and uh, eldest brother started. He learned, oh, he got he got into boxing through his best friend at school, a guy called Frankie Lucas, who went on to be, challenge Tony Simpson uh, as, as a middleweight, very successful middleweight. Uh, Frankie Lucas also uh, represented, I think, I think it was up Trinidad or St Kitts or Jamaica in the. Uh, in the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games. So anyway, but, anyway, Frankie Frankie started boxing, and then a uh, good friend of Clinton's, and it just and then Clinton started, and then Winston started, and then and then I started. Dudley started, sorry, Dudley started, and, and then I started. It was like the blind leading the blind. If 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 Clinton would have would have been a you know if he had done ballet, or if he'd have been a pub owner, or if he'd have, you know been a policeman or a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, we would have just all followed him. It really was the blind leading the blind. Yeah, like a domino effect almost. And obviously, Duke, yeah. you you know, you box as an amateur between... When did you start boxing as an amateur? I started at the age of 13 at the Sir Philip Game Amateur Boxing Club in Croydon. Uh, boxed there for three... About three... Yeah, boxed there for three years. Two or three... Yeah, about two years, sorry. And then that closed down. It's a Philip Game Amateur Boxing Club closed down. And then I went to the Battersea Amateur Boxing Club. And um, that's where things just took a massive turn for me, really, for the better. I was okay. I was, you know, I don't know. I just, I was just an okay amateur. I wasn't good. I wasn't bad. Well, no, I was, I was quite bad as an amateur. <laughs> but, but my, um, my coach at, in, in the amateurs was a guy called Tony Chaps, Chap, Tony Chapman, excellent coach, uh, Won a lot with my brother Dudley. I mean, he made Dudley an eight-time All England national champion. But Dudley went to the first World Junior Championships in Yokohama in Japan, 1979. Clinton went to the 1976 Olympic Games in Montreal. Uh, Sugar and in the quarterfinals. Yeah. Winston also. My other brother Winston was a, was an England international. My brothers were brilliant, am- brilliant amateurs. There's nothing they didn't win. And uh, and then there was me. You know, just. Sort of followed suit, really. Didn't really want to fight, just liked to be around my brothers. That's the God's honest truth. I, I love to be around 
wherever they was, there was a buzz, and that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be around them, so I, did. I just followed them. Oh, that's excellent, man. And obviously, the the professional journey began November 1982. Charlie Brown was the opponent. I mean, you made light work of him. You got him out of there in the first round. Can you remember what it was like if there was nerves before that fight, and if you were happy or sad after the fight because it ended so quickly? I was as nervous as Charlie Brown uh, going into the ring, I promise you. But Charlie, um, to be honest with you, I think his backside fell out really quick because um, he probably thought he was fighting somebody that was better than what he was. Bear in mind, this is my professional debut and I think he was really apprehensive and really nervous and probably that just added to the, the impact of the shot that I did catch him. If I caught him with a body shot and he, you know, he just faulted on me and uh, that was it really. Don't really remember too much about Charlie. I think never spoke to him after the fight and or before the fight. Uh, just one of them things, really. Just on you know, beginning of my uh, of my journey. And again, on that same card, I mean, obviously you made your debut um, with with obviously Clinton fighting on the on the card. Charlie yeah. Magri, who you'd eventually go on to fight, was on the card, and Frank Bruno, a young Frank Bruno back then as well. So uh, good company straight away. Um, I believe it was your third fight, if I'm not mistaken, where you started to box in the States a lot. How did that come about, Duke? And do you believe that those times you were fighting away from home, you were able to gain some kind of important exp- experience from it at the time? I gained, I gained so much experience. I gained so much uh, knowledge from... Uh, Mickey Duff just took me on this whirlwind trip all over America... I don't really know why. He just liked me, and I liked him. But we, and we got on really, really well. And he just—I think he just liked having me around. But Mickey was also manager to Cornelius Bose Redwoods, who was his first world champion, I believe, a uh, nine-stone four junior lightweight WBC champion. And I got on really well with, with Bozer as well. And uh, like I say, we just, we just went on this sort of whistle-stop trip, really. Mickey, Mickey, I don't really know what Mickey saw in me. I don't. Um, I'm glad he did whatever he did see because I'd seen every manager in the country up until that point and they'd all turned me down. None of them would even, in actual fact, a few of the big names in there wouldn't even give me an interview, wouldn't even, didn't even want to see me. But um, Mickey saw something in me and I don't, like I said, I, I was very persistent at the time because I wouldn't, he wanted to give me like a caretaker manager originally, but, but I wouldn't have it. And then, um, yeah, Mickey said that there was a lack of opponents, you know, that we could actually potentially face in Britain because I was a, you know, a black flyweight. Those were his words. Uh, he said, you know, you're a black flyweight. He said, you don't sell tickets. He said, he said we ain't going to get any fights where we are. He said, we, you know, so um, Mickey spent a lot of time in, in America in those days. Well, he, did, he spent probably six months there and six months here. It was like that, really. And uh, so he took me, he took me everywhere. I think the first fight was Vegas. Uh, then we went to, I think, Atlantic City, Los Angeles, Reno, uh, back to Vegas, I think. And then I think we went, did it, yeah, I don't think we went to, uh, we had a couple of fights on the continent after that. Yeah, it was quite a trip. I mean, let's get to let's get to June 1985. At this time, obviously, your record's 10-0, 7 KOs before boxing the, uh, uh, Danny Flynn for the British title. Now, obviously, Danny Flynn had never been... Uh, he'd been stopped the once. It was in eight rounds to Hugh Russell. And then you stopped Flynn mm. half the time Russell did. It took you four rounds. You had him down six times. Talk us through that fight and how it felt at that stage to become the champion of Britain. Well, I wanted to win so badly because I just wanted to emulate my older brother at this point. Clinton, who was already British, like, welterweight champion. And I'd been 
I was quite inspired by Clint uh, as a kid growing up because we just followed him. We was like his fan club, you know, like his in-house fan club. Well, me and the rest of my brothers it was me, Dudley, Winston. Uh, we'd all, you know, whatever Clint thought, we just followed him basically. But um, I always wanted to emulate Clint because I, you know, when I was, I think I was like sort of 1920 when Clint first won the British Championship and I sort of got a glimpse of a Lonsdale belt. I just thought that I hadn't seen anything like it. It was it was just it was unbelievable to be honest with you. And I still think it's the best looking belt. Definitely. Um, although I've got I've, yeah, although I've I actually own three world championship belts, but I don't think there's another belt like a Lonsdale belt. It's an unbelievable belt to own. And Clinton went on to own two of these belts outright. I think he should have probably had three Lonsdale belts outright. But the, the boxing border control bought some ruling in saying that you couldn't actually own three belts. So uh, I think you have to give one back. But anyway, listen, that was my incentive. Clinton was like an incentive to, uh, to, to, to win the British Championship. And I knew that going in against Danny Flynn, I knew I had a 50-50 chance of winning the fight because of the faith and confidence that Mickey Duff, Mickey Duff had installed in me. And I knew, I knew he wouldn't have done that if he didn't think I had something. So... Um, I was I was reasonably confident going into the fight. My only sort of drawback going into Danny Flynn fight was it was scheduled for twelve. I'd never been twelve, hadn't been eight at that point. I don't think. And uh, I just think uh, I just think I look at the Flynn fight. It was uh, it was it really was um, my sort of first step or my first sort of taste. Even if I'd have lost to Danny Flynn, I'd have come again. Do you see what I mean? Because there was a lack of there was a lack of competition in the flyweight division. Regardless, I think. Uh, Kelvin Smart had vacated the British title up until that point and I'd sparred Kelvin Smart before the Danny Flynn fight, way before the Danny Flynn fight. Well, in actual fact, before I actually turned pro, I'd sparred Kelvin Smart and just sort of held my own, I thought. And then, um, anyway, so I had the Flynn fight and they pressed I'd become a British champion. <laughs> so I was, yeah, yeah, quite proud. <laughs> and of course, you had the two wins after that, um, and then came the, the Charlie Magri fight for the European flyweight title. Now you talk about, you know, it was it was quite difficult, as you said, you know, being being a black flyweight back then, having to go on the road to the states. Do you feel like the win here against Charlie Magri was kind of the breakthrough win at that stage? Yeah, that was that was like my, um, you know, that was like. Uh, how can I explain that fight, the Magri fight? Well, listen, unbeknownst to Charlie, Mickey had had me in America sparring, and I'd had some absolute belting sparring partners in, in, in America and, uh, you know, getting me ready for the Magri fight. And then also, I, Mickey got me some sparring over here. He got me this Puerto Rican kid to come over to spar. I guy called Juan Muriel to, um, for probably about the best part of, like, 10 days to two weeks. This kid literally punched me from pillar to post. And he was, uh, again, he sort of replicated the Magri style. So that was that was like my coming-of-age fight, the Magri fight. Again, I don't think it would have been detrimental had I have lost, because then I would have looked at it and said, so, okay, you know, it's like a learning curve. I've lost like a former world champion, reigning European champion, A, B, C, D. But again, although it was probably on paper a fight I wasn't supposed to win, I was very quietly confident and I had a lot of belief in what my brother was telling me uh, throughout the whole of my life, Dudley. Dudley was like a massive uh, inspiration to me and Dudley really was 
Dudley was like the catalyst of everything I ever did. All that I, all that I've ever been, all that I, all that I am, even to this day, I owe to my brother Dudley because I looked up to him so much. And if Dudley told me I could have beat Mike Tyson, I'd have believed him. If he'd have told me I couldn't have beaten Charlie Magri, I would have believed him. But when the Magri fight was made, he said to me, "It's not a problem." It really wasn't. And like I say, Mickey had got me in America and got me prepared for it. And I had a great coach, a guy called Colin Smith, who trained me um, for all of my senior amateur fights, where I started to just do, you know, very well. I did quite well with Colin, to be honest with you. Uh, we just had a really, really good bond, you know, the father figure type, the best friend type, the mentor type sort of relationship. And... Um, Colin really fancied the Magri fight big time because when the fight was made, he said to me, Mackenzie, he said to me, um, I'll never forget it. He sat me down as Colin did. He's very sort of methodical in his approach to when he spoke to me. He'd sit me down, put his arm around me like a dad and just said, Mackenzie, he said, he said, I really fancy this one, son. He said, uh, you know, he said, we're going to do it. And that was it. I didn't really panic or just, you know, it was something to look forward to, wasn't it? The Charlie Magri fight for me because um, like I say, Charlie had lost to Sochi Talada, or lost his world championships to Sochi Talada. But then Charlie did something which no British fighter was doing at that point. He defended his, he, he went to Franco Cherky's backyard and destroyed him in about two or three rounds and put the European title from him, uh, which, like I say, that was unheard of at that point. Uh, a British fighter going abroad and knocking somebody out or winning the European title. And then he come back to defend the European against me for my what was then the British Championship. So it was a dual headliner at Wembley Arena. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was um, like my coming of age fight, really. But I'd been, like I said, I'd been in America, right? And I was in, I spent a lot of time at Johnny Tocco's gym uh, in downtown Vegas. And Johnny Tocco was this real, you know, like the Mickey film, uh, you see, uh, in the Rocky film, sorry, you see that little guy, Mickey, yeah, yeah. with the hat on. and yeah. Well, Johnny Tocco, was, I promise, he was this kind of character. He, he, he ate, slept, walked, talked, drunk, boxing. And he had this little downtown gym in Vegas. And that's where I'd you know, like to say, it. I mean, one day I was in, I was in this gym, right? And there was like, um, Hector Camacho, these guys were coming at different times, mind you, throughout the day, like, to train, right? So it was like Hector Camacho, he'd come in and train. Then he'd leave. Then Adrian Rosario would come in. He'd wow. do his stint. He'd leave. Livingstone Bramble would come in. He'd come and do his workout. John McGarvey would go and do his workout. Rose Redwood would go and do his workout. And in between all these guys training, because all these guys were fighting one another in, like, a bit of a round-robin type thing, uh, in between all these guys were training, all the other big stars would like put in an appearance, not training, they just come in and show their face. Sugar Ray Leonard popped in, Marvin Hagler popped in, Evander Holyfield popped in. Um, it, was, it, was, it was like being a kid in a sweet shop for me. I just couldn't believe the amount, Pernod Whitaker was there as well. I just couldn't believe the amount of top flight guys I was looking at. And like I said, it was like being a kid in a sweet shop. It's ridiculous. But like I say, this is all like a learning curve for me. So you can imagine, I'm, I'm like sort of 21 years old, I think, 21, 22 years old, wide-eyed, open-mouthed, watching all of these superstars. Well, they weren't superstars then, but they'd go on to become superstars. And I'll tell you what, I had a really good conversation with Amanda Holyfield and Pernod Whitaker uh, before they'd won anything. And um, it was just, you know what, it was, it, was a, it was an amazing experience. It really was. 
Oh, that sounds unbelievable. Like I say, the names you're reeling off there, real, real, real big guys in the sport, of course. And just, just to touch on that Magri fight, obviously the towel came in in round five, and that was it. You became the champion of Europe, the European champion. You defended the the title successfully next time out against Gian Piero Pina over twelve rounds. Uh, then you beat the in, in his in his, in his, backyard, in his backyard, yeah. And then, of course, you you beat the former world champion Juan Herrera on points over ten. Um, then defended it again successfully, the European against Adjapito Gomez. He got him out of there in two, uh, which, again, was real impressive. And fast-forwarding then to, to October the 5th, 1988, a night I'm sure you'll never, yeah. ever, ever forget. Talk me through the fight, no. and uh, what do you remember of the night itself, Duke? <laughs> so the Rolando Bowhole fight was a real... Um, it was a real test of my character and a real test of nerves... When Mickey, we'd been trying to get the Sochi Tadada fight for some time, and it, it just didn't come about for one reason or another. I think namely because Mickey wouldn't pay him the money they was asking for. I was trying to hold him to ransom, like pretty much. And you know, Mickey Duff is like he, he wasn't open up from anybody, so the Tadada fight didn't come about. But I don't really think they fancied it at the time anyway, because I was very much on the ascendancy, very much on the way up, and. I think Chisara was having a lot of weight-making problems and one thing and another. So uh, anyway, that fight didn't happen. And as soon as he switched his attentions to the the IBF champion, Rolando Bohol, who nobody had heard of, and Bohol had never travelled outside of the Philippines. So there was a lot of things going in my favour. Uh, then, then obviously, if the fight was maybe like in the States or, you know, got forbid in, in his backyard in the Philippines, it might have been a different story. But he travelled and... He came over on a cold winter's night to the Wembley Conference Centre, June the 5th, 1980, 1988. It was my trainer's wedding anniversary the night before, and I vowed to him that I was going to win the fight, although I didn't believe it at the time. I said to him, Smith, I just called him Smith. I said, Smith, I said, I'm going to win this one for you. This will be your, your anniversary present. And um, he was confident I would win. Mickey Duff was confident I would win. I had a really good sparring. I sparred, um, do you remember John Highland? Yes, yes. I sparred a guy called John Highland who was an outstanding amateur and a very decent professional. And he was a Southpaw. I sparred John Highland for probably about um, a good sort of four or five weeks before this fight. Southpaw, just all Southpaw sparring. Didn't have any lefties at all. And uh, he got me in you know, really good shape. When I, I really held my own against John Highland, although he was a bantamweight and I was a flyweight. But uh, he didn't take any liberties anyway. He's a lovely guy. And uh, we sparred me, and I was ready, really, for the fight. And I just, all I kept saying to myself was, you know, when you do your tick box, I just knew that there was no stone unturned. I'd never I'd never cheated in, 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 in camp. Um, I was making weight okay. And, you know, had I not have won the fight, again, I just feel... I tried to take the pressure off myself by saying to myself, you know, I'd, I'd come again, you know. So um, the whole fight, I just talked myself through the fight round by round, basically. I was just happy at one point. On the morning of the fight, I just, when I was in a, a little bit of a meltdown, a little bit of a cry, because all boxers go through the same process, really, you know. Nobody doesn't ever suffer from fear or any sort of anxiousness or, you know, you, know, you always have a certain amount of self-doubt. But I kept saying to myself, you know, if I can just get through to the end of the 12th, if I can just get through to the end of the 12th round, if I can just get through to the end of the fight, 
I wouldn't have done myself any any disservice or, you know, I'd have done 12 rounds, I'd have gone the distance with a world champion and if I've lost, then I've lost to a world champion but if I've won, then, <laughs> then, I'm, then, I'm, then, I'm, then I'm world champion. Also, what helped me was the IBF was the only governing body at that time that was having their, the weigh-in the, the night before. So, you know, I'd weigh in at like, I think it was about four o'clock, five o'clock the evening before, ate my face off, rehydrated, uh, slept a lot for the, you know, on the morning of the fight, uh, you know, I had my breakfast, did my normal ritual, tried my kit on, still doubted myself, and then Dudley gave me my pep talk throughout the day, because like I say, Dudley was my conscience. Yeah. Dudley gave me my pep talk, talked me through the fight, told me how I was going to win it, followed it, followed his instruction. Followed my, my coach's uh, instructions because he'd always set out always set out a game plan as to how he was going to win fights, and I just followed that. And then round by round, you see what I found in in all of my fights. Even now, when I look back at a lot of my fights, because I like to watch a lot of my fights now, and my coach taught me to jab so well, and that that's my best shot. And if you look at any of my fights, you'll see even in the fights that I lost. You know, I have a lot of success with my jab. And this is how I break bow hole down. It was a little bit shorter than me. And I always liked guys that were just a little bit shorter than me because I knew, I knew I'd get them at some point with the jabs. And I just break him down round after round just uh, with the jab. And then I just start introducing, you know, I hate him with a lot of single shots, like single jabs to begin with and single crosses. And But then once I find my range, I can start putting my combinations together. And I've always been reasonably patient in fights. I've, I've never been one to rush. Uh, so I didn't in the bow hole fight and then I break him down round after round and I do the fight in what we call quarters I do you know like the first four rounds and then we go from four to eight and then from eight to twelve uh, do it in that, that sort of a sequence sorry it's thirds isn't yes. it my mistake <laughs> four, four, yeah, four, four rounds but I mean uh, in four rounds that's a quarter but in if you break it down it's like in, in thirds because it's like you know four four and four so for the first for the first four rounds, I, I kept saying to myself, "Well, I'm a little bit behind." But I think in about the, at the end of the at the end of the third round, at the end of the second round, I'm fed up with running because I run like a thief in the night for the first two rounds because I know that's when he's going to be his, uh, his most strongest. So I give him the first two rounds, and then at the end of the third, I, I get fed up with running, and I just think, "Well, I give him a little test," and I do. And then, to my amazement, um, I felt as physically as strong as he was. And then that gave me a lot of confidence for the fourth round. And then I buzz him, I think, in about the fourth round. I think I buzz him again about the sixth round. So my confidence is starting to grow now. And then I start to hurt him around round eight. And then he starts to go, he just starts to go dead. He just goes dead. He just goes really tired. So I think he was like really tired of the weight. And then I just sort of start to pile it on and pick him up more with the jab, hitting him with more jabs. And I'm hitting Give me plenty of jabs and I'm following through with the right hand. And then uh and then I start switching my attack from head to body. And then I have a really good body shot in the at the end of the tenth round. Tenth end of the eleventh yeah, end of the tenth round I hit with a really good body shot and it just it just knocked the stuffing out of him. And then um I just kept saying to myself, you know, you got another six minutes, I am gonna beat the fight's gonna be over and I got a chance and he just couldn't go with the pace at the end of the fight and he just fell apart. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that was it. I'm world champion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did. Like I say, I mean, you became the first man to stop him. Uh, funny enough, it's, it's going to be his 54th birthday on Christmas Day, but that's another story. Um, but yeah, Jim, that's another story. You, yeah. you were 21 and 0, the, the new IBF flyweight champion of the world. Did life change at all at that point for you? Rapidly. Rapidly. Rap- uh, rapidly. Uh, yeah, I was getting invites to places like I've never been before, like string fellows, and there's one or two sort of like. Um, television appearances I was doing and you know I'm just a normal kid from Croydon South London not used to that kind of high life and you know uh, it blew my mind a little bit to be honest with you it did it really took me it took me aback and I think it's the old sort of old sort of adage you you know you you sort of take your your eyes off the prize a little bit or I did anyway I took my eyes off the prize a little bit but um I was world champion and I just, I was very proud of being a world champion, but I was like, um, I don't know. It was, it was, a, it, it was quite a surreal emotion. It was, you know, the emotions that I was going through, they were very surreal because I can remember the, my, when I was going after beating Boho, when I was going back to the changing room with Dudley and he had his hand on my shoulder and he said to me, he's called me little man. He said to me, little man, he said to me, he said to me, you know, we need to really enjoy tonight, he said, because it's not going to last. And I couldn't really believe or understand what he was talking about at that time. I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, I said to him, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, you know, I've just won the world championship. I'm like world champion. He said, it ain't going to last. He said, you need to just enjoy it while you can. And, you know, we need to go out and celebrate tonight like we're a champion, which we did. And... um it was just, uh, like I say, it was just, it was beautiful. It was like a bit of sweet, really. It was like bittersweet. It really was. But, um, you know, and I, I, I was never really one for going out. And when I say, you know, I started going out, I was never one for the high life. There was never any drink, any drugs, any rock and roll. I'm not that kind of guy. But, you know, I mean, a, a late night for me would have been about 11 o'clock. But, you know, I was going out sometimes till about sort of one o'clock in the morning. And, um <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, listen, it was like, it, listen, it was, a, it was a nice experience. It was a lovely experience. But they, no sooner had I, had I sort of won the title, and then, um, and then, oh, this is where it also went, it went a little bit wrong. I can't say it went wrong. Dudley, my brother Dudley was getting married, right? And um, so I'm in Barbados like two weeks before uh, they've announced my, my, I know, so I've beaten Tony DeLuca. So after the after the Luca fight, we've moved on to the McCauley fight. Now, I looked at McCauley's record and I'd looked at some of his fights and he'd been on the deck fight like 17 or 18 times. And I really thought I had nothing to worry about. So I'm in Barbados two weeks before the McCauley fight and I'm like stone overweight. You know, you've seen it in like Raging Ball. He gets back, he's a fat slob. Right, and I get back and I get on the scales. But I'd been training while I was in Barbados because I'd been running every day uh, I'd been shadow boxing. I did all my training accordingly before I went, and my coach pleaded with me not to go. But Dudley's my best friend as well as being my brother, and I was his best man, as he was my best man at my wedding. So there was no way I wasn't going. Do you understand? There was no way. Dudley said to me, look, little man, he said, getting married, you're my best man. He said to me, I understand if you're not going to come, because obviously, you know, we got this fight. But he said, I need you there. He didn't say... Can I make it? Once he said to me, I need you there, that was it. It was I was going. And wild horses wouldn't have kept me from going. Because like I say, we were more than brothers. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So 
Yeah, I got I got over to Barbados. I was still running. I didn't think I'd have any problem with McCauley whatsoever because, you know, he'd been bounced off the canvas so many times. Um, and I thought, we're the same height as well. He's five foot seven. He'll have the same weight problems as I had. But it turned out that he didn't. It turned out on the night he was actually better than I thought he was. It turned out on the night he made the weight better than what I did. And when I got to the official weigh, and I was still I was still three quarters of a pound overweight, so I had to skip the weight off. And then when I got to the weigh, Mickey Mickey Duff looked at me and he said to me, Mackenzie, he went fuck me. He said, he said, you look like a black pair of braces. I was so drawn and so gaunt looking. And then I went shit. I thought I'm in trouble now because if my manager's saying to me I don't look right, then something's wrong, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. And and McCauley had me hurt from the first round. Wow. He had me hurt from the first round. He, he absolutely destroyed me with a body shot. And then he started to batter me around the head. And I just thought, shit, I'm in trouble. And I just thought, I can't. I, can't, I, just, I just went straight into survival mode. I don't know if you've ever watched this fight, but I just go into survival mode. And from the, from the second round, that's all I'm trying to do is, is to survive. Because I know the title's gone, but I'm just thinking... I can't get knocked out by this guy. I just can't. I can't get stopped by this guy. I just can't. And like I say, I'm in survival mode and I've lost the fight. But to be honest with you, it came as a relief losing to Dave McCauley because I was struggling so bad to make weight. I actually had one or two blackouts trying to make the weight, not eating, not drinking, you know, not rehydrating. Yeah, I was going, it was an absolute nightmare. But they knew they knew I was having problems making weight, and they just they done a number on me basically. And you know, I mean, listen, I can look back now and say to myself, "Well, did I do the right thing?" And if I had to, if I had to do it all again, exactly the same way, I would. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you, Duke, if because because I like to ask this to a lot of fighters, you know, did did the first loss make you or break you? The way you're sort of saying because because a lot of people obviously it breaks them there, they're destroyed, and then they. You know, they got some added hunger to just come back and give it something, give it more, give it 110%. But to say like it was a relief, I'm wondering, did, you know, because it doesn't seem like it affected you that bad, or, or, or am I wrong? Am I interpreting that wrong? It never affected me at all. <laughs> I wasn't, I promise you, I stayed up. But I, I don't just, I don't, this is not a lie, and I haven't made this up, and it's not like I've had time to think about what I'm going to say to you, because if you speak to anybody that knows me, they'll tell you the, this is exactly how I answer that question. It came as a relief because I'd gone without living like a normal person for so long in my whole career. You know, when you have to make weight, when weight becomes your whole focus, when weight becomes your God and not the fight, then you're in trouble. And I, I, I suffered so badly making weight. I mean, even to this day, I go to bed now every night. You can ask my wife if you don't believe me. I go to bed now with like an orange juice and a Mars bar or a couple of biscuits. No, just in case, like, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I can reach over and grab it and fill my and fill my face. I I I I eat roast dinners or like rice and peas at ridiculous hours of the of the night. I can't go to bed hungry. I'm one of those guys. This is how boxing will, will any boxer will tell you that it scars you mentally. When it comes to food, it does. I'm a glutton for food. And um, I did some crazy things when trying to make weight for fights, uh, particularly in the McCauley fight. And like I say, but my luck, my luck, my luck ran out. But like I say, when I look 
back on my career now, it came as such a relief and losing to him at that point, he'd done me a favour because as you, you know, you, 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 you know my career and what I went on to achieve and I just think I'd love to fought him again at bantamweight or even at super bantamweight. So it's the old age story, isn't it? You know, he won, he won the fight, he won the battle, but I won the war because I just think, you know, he only won a world title in one weight division and I did it in three weight divisions. And I think, I think I've arguably, if when I'm asked, I've arguably probably, probably beaten a better caliber of fighter later on in my career in different weight divisions. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't begrudge Dave McCauley in no way, shape or form. He's a, he's a fine champion. Uh, as, as he as he as he went on to be, I think he defended the title four or five times after beating me. So um, if I am, if he looks at me and thinks to himself, um, you know what, I beat Duke McKenzie, he was a good fighter. Then I'm I'm pleased. I'm pleased for him. I really am. I, I don't. I never hold any. You know, I lost. I lost six times in my career, six or seven times in my career, and I don't. I don't begrudge or hold a grudge against any any of the guys that beat me. Um, and there's only one fight in my whole career that I think I, I, I possibly could have won, but I didn't get a decision. But we'll go on to that in a, in a minute. Um, but like I say, I'm not really, I don't hold grudges. And like I say, I just think, I think he done me a favour, you know, because my name's in the record books and his isn't. <laughs> you know, my, you know, I'm, well, it's a fact, isn't it? It's a fact. When you talk about, you know, guys that have won world titles at three weights or more, you're not going to hear Dave McCauley's name there, are you? You know, because he only won world titles in one weight division. Yeah, that's right. So, and that's not sour grapes on no. that's not sour grapes on my part. It's a fact. Yeah, it's a fact. So, you know, I mean, listen, you know, like I said, I think I went on to be a better caliber fighter. When I see when I'm thrown and fought on, on all cylinders, I think I, I think I could hold my own with anybody. Uh, yeah, I really do. So, yeah, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. And like I say, after that fight, obviously, you made the move to to bantamweight. Um, couple fights, obviously, at the lower level, wins over David Moreno and Guillermo Flores, and then, of course, for the uh, for the vacant EBU European bantamweight title, the loss against yeah. Terry Jacob. Obviously, you know, losing a world title, there's no real shame in it. You said you're relieved. You move up a weight because making that weight was a struggle, and then to lose for the European. Yeah. Did that almost kind of make you think perhaps this move up to Bantam wasn't a good idea? Where were you left after that loss? No, no, no. The Jacob fight made me. You know, fighters talk about their career-defining fights and fights that actually made them. That loss made me, I promise you. Okay. It's the first time in my life I've, ever, I've, I've been decked. It's the first time I've been hurt in a fight so bad I wanted to cry. <laughs> it's the first time in my, in my life that I actually wanted to quit in a fight. This guy punched me. You know, he hit me so many times. I'm not joking. I really thought I was surrounded. I don't know if you've ever seen the fight. And he was cut so bad. I think after the fight, I think he had something like I'd be 11 or 17 stitches. This He bled everywhere, but they patched him up and just kept throwing him out. And in the end, he kind of broke my heart because I, I, I hit him with so many clean shots and so many foul shots. I mean, I hit him with the head. I hit him with my elbow. I hit him low. And he just, he's like, he's like, he's like, um, he's like Freddy Krueger. He just keeps coming after me and I can't stop him. It's just ridiculous. You've got to watch the fight sometime. You'll see what I mean. 
it's a but it was such and it's the first time I'd ever experienced like real hostility because I fight him at a place called the um I think it's called the Fontenay sur Bois in France. And there's like ten thousand screaming French guys and some of them are actually spitting at me on on my ring walk. And you know, they were ringing me up at three o'clock in the morning and banging on my hotel door and you know, the, the, you get to the you get to the gym and the gym's locked because you want to check your weight and there's no scales and your doctor's late and everything 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 that could have gone wrong in that fight did go wrong and they really done a number on me but it was such a great experience the whole fight that's out of out of my 42 i think 42 fights 40 41 42 fights i had including all of my world title fights including all of my world title defenses i never had a hard, i never had a harder fight than that Okay, that, I never had that answers the no. question I was going Cher- to ask later on about who was the toughest fight. So, yeah, yeah. Cherry Jekyll, hands down. Definitely. And obviously, like yeah, I say, after down. that, you, you know, you take on Peter Buckley. Now, this one's an interesting one because Peter Buckley obviously went on to have 300 fights. He was only ever stopped 10 times. And you were two of those 10 because, again, later on you'd have the rematch. But back to the chronological order. Um, after that, you go on to beat Julio Blanco and Chris Clarkson before making a run at the at the other world title. Obviously, Gabby Canizales. Um, yeah, again, you know, he was a... Uh, was he a two-time? He was a two-time world champion, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah two-time bantamweight. Yeah, two-time like bantamweight. Shut, shut him out over twelve. That made you a two-time world champion. Talk me through that one, and of course, how it felt to win a world title for the second time. Well, again, I, you know, I was so I was so confident going into that fight because Mickey Duff. When I first turned pro, Mickey Duff said to me, "You're a bantamweight. You're not a flyweight. You're a bantamweight, and we'll start the career at bantamweight." And I insisted that I was a flyweight. That's why I stayed at that weight division for so long. But Mickey said to me, um, he's made the Canizales fight. And he said to me, the fight's going to be in here, over in this country at the Elephant and Castle. So it's going to be a Sunday night. He, Mickey said to me, after, after I'd lost to the Macaulay fight, he said to me, um, sorry, and after I'd lost to Jacob, sorry, he said to me, the only thing that beat me in the Jacob fight was inactivity. I think I hadn't boxed for something like 15, 16 months going into that fight. And I was, I was, I was a little bit rusty, if truth be known. So, but he got me those three fights back to back. Peter Buckley, Chris Clarkson, and Julio Blanco. And if you look at my career, those fights were all about like six, eight weeks apart. Yeah. So going into the, going into the Canizales fight, I was so sharp because I'd had so much activity. And I all I said to myself was, if I stand still, this guy's going to knock me out. He had no, more knockouts on his record than I had in my whole career. And I thought to myself, and because he was, you know, trying to sound me out at the weigh-in, and I knew, I knew you you know, this this, this saying, if, if your opponent starts to try and sound you out and they start bad-mouthing you, it means they're shitting themselves. And I kind of sensed with Canizales, things weren't right because of the way he was acting at the weighing, you know, trying to stare me down and, you know, I'm going to knock you out and you're this and you're not strong and all the usual shit. And I was never really one for buying into that kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I'm just a quiet guy. I just, I do my fighting in the ring and, you know, for 12 weeks, no, it wasn't, it was 16 weeks, my mistake, For 16 weeks. I didn't go out of my house unless I was going to the gym. I didn't, I didn't get up in the morning unless I was going to do my run in the morning. I didn't, I didn't go to a cinema, I didn't go to the shops, I didn't go to a supermarket, 
I didn't do anything that I wasn't supposed to do. And for 12 weeks, what I did was et slept, drunk, walked and talked down his alleys. And I think he, he, in his mind's eye, I was just another payday because he was this big puncher and I was quite weak in his eyes. And um, I, I kid you not, I'd, I'd, be, I'd almost gone into like method mode as like what actors do because I kept saying to myself, if I go to the shops or I have sex or... I have a late night, or it's cheating, and if I cheat, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna lose. That was my mindset. So for these 16 weeks, I ate, slept, walked, I went to bed every day. I kid you not, I went to bed every day at seven o'clock. I was up every morning at five o'clock, doing my run or going to the gym. And I'd go, and after I'd been to the gym. And I got home and I went, I'd had my, I'd had something to eat. I went straight to bed. I'd go to bed even when I wasn't tired. I just made sure I was in my bed. So that if after the fight I'd lost, there was no question I could ask myself, did you run right? Did you sleep right? Did you have sex? Was you going out? Did you make weight? You know, once like I say, I ticked so many boxes, I knew that if I stood still, I'd get knocked out. So the plan was not to stand still. And for 12 rounds, I was so fit anyway. I was, I was running like, six eight miles every day on a weekday on a weekend i was running anything from 10 to 15 miles i was like i was like i felt superhuman at that point i, I really did i was so fit and so strong and i just i don't stop moving in the cali's Island's fight and i just i jab his head off would you say that was the point in your career where you felt you know your 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 prime i, I guess yeah that was my that was my absolute my okay. absolute prime yeah. I, uh yeah and you'll never know what it is to be able to get up in the morning while you're in training and have breakfast and have lunch and have an evening meal. And Mickey Duff, you say to me, a happy fighter is a good fighter. If you can eat and drink what you like, you're happy. And if you've got ability, it will come out. And that's exactly how that fight panned out. I was eating three squares every day, not like the McCauley fight. I'd have like one meal in the morning and that was me. That was my breakfast, like a poached egg on toast. And just live off water and salad. But I was having like a fried breakfast for the Canizales fight every morning. I was having like a like a proper lunch at lunchtime. You know, like a lunch, like a salad or whatever, because I couldn't have too much because obviously I was going to the gym. Then I'd come back and I'd have like a proper full dinner and drink on top of that. And another drink before I went to bed. So I was happy going into the Canizales fight. And um, it showed in the fight. Yeah, it certainly did. And like I say, your first defence came to Caesar Soto, who again would also go on to become a world champion himself in the future. You beat him, a very tough Mexican, unanimously over 12. Yeah. Um, again, you can interrupt me at any point if you want to add something to it. Uh, the, 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 the title defence next was against former world title challenger Wilfredo Vargas. You stop him in eight at the Royal Albert Hall in March 1992. And then, of course, you're back there just seven weeks later. Um, this time, you know, it wouldn't end well. A first round KO loss to Rafael Duval. Down from a jab initially, but you got back up and ended taking a straight right, followed by a left hook. No one really knew much about Duval, obviously, before that. I watched it again the other day. A massive, massive, massive upset. Were you simply caught cold, Duke? Not trying to throw an excuse your way, but it seemed like that. No, I wasn't caught cold. I, I, I had a really bad cold just before the fight. The week before the fight, I had a really bad cold. And I went to Mickey Duff's office on the Sunday before, and I said, Mick, I said, I'm not right. Pull me out of the fight. He said, I can't pull you out of the fight, dude. He said, I just sold the fight coast to coast back to America. He said to me, don't worry about this kid. He said, you'll beat him. He said, um, it's no big deal. He said, you'll, you'll, you'll beat this kid. 
he said, I'm going to keep you nice and active. And um, I just thought, oh, I'll beat him because I'm world champion. So I didn't, I never took him lightly or anything like that. But um, I just walked on to one. He just, he, he, he threw a straight right, missed that. And then he, he sort of, he switched it into a, like a jab. And as he threw the jab, he sort of he took, turned his shoulder over it. And it just caught me right on, on, on the chin. And I just went over like a sack of shit. And I couldn't, I just wasn't right. I just, I didn't recover. I just didn't recover. I just I, anyway, and that was it. That was it. The fight was over. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was one of them. One of them. It was like a very surreal moment. It's like everything went in slow motion. You know, like when you see these psycho films, and the psycho is just about to stab the woman in the shower, but before she she gets stabbed, she turns around and she glimpses him, and then he, he he's he's like about fifty meters away or fifty yards away, and you it's get that sort of tunnel vision. <laughs> Yeah, you get that sort of tunnel vision. Well, as he hit me on the chin, his arms just seemed to get longer and longer and longer. Because I tried to, I, I, I was trying to fall onto him, to be honest. But his arms were so long, and I just, I just went over like, like I said, I just went, I was gone, and uh, and that was it. The title was gone. But um, it, again, I, it was, it was a very, I was, I was very, I was very upset. I was very sad. I was very hurt by the loss. But but Dudley had a lot of confidence in me, and Dudley always said to me, you know, when you can't make weight or you lose a fight, we're, we're just going to keep moving up till our luck runs out. So that was the next that was the next inevitable step for me. Um, whether I, this is the only time I, the only time I I, I I I I thought I had a point to prove in the whole of my career was when I boxed Jesse Benavides. It wasn't the whole fight or the Canizales fight. It was the Benavides fight because I knew everybody would be looking at me thinking he's washed up, he's finished, he ain't going to beat Jesse Benavides. It was a Ring Magazine fighter of the month that month. Um, I think he'd only lost one in about 22, something like that. And Southpaw, um, another sort of ex-cronk fighter. He'd lost one in um, 36, I think it was. There you go. Yeah. So he'd lost one in 36. He, I'd actually watched Benavides uh, this guy called Jesus Salud, who was they called him the Hawaiian Punch, and Salud was a really good puncher. And I watched Benavides work the floor with this guy. I mean, if you ever get a chance, you need to watch it because if you like a southpaw, I love a southpaw because I was brought up with southpaws. Dudley was a southpaw, Clinton was a southpaw, so I was brought up with southpaws. And I, I just, I just kept saying to myself, I can beat this guy. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove, I'm gonna prove to myself that. You know what happened with with um, with Del Valley was a fluke. I'm going to prove to Mickey Duff because I I kind of got the feeling that Mickey never thought I could. He wasn't 100 percent sure I could I could beat this kid. I'm sure of that, but I just kept saying to myself, I got a point to prove that I'm not washed up. I'm not over the hill. And the difference between me and Benavides on the night was one simple factor. It wasn't I was better than him, and I didn't think he was better than me. I just I just wanted it more. I just wanted to win so badly, and he wasn't prepared to dig in and really bite down and and really you know save his title. He kind of he, he I think from from maybe like the tenth round he he kind of had this look of resignation on his face because I was just there and he never expected me to be there because I'd lost the bantamweight title fight in such dramatic fashion. He thought he'd, he'd get me out of there a lot quicker because he was a you know a really good fighter. Benavides, I rate the guy. Even to this day, I still rate him. I still think he's a, a top fighter. But um, I just wanted to win 
so badly. I wanted to win, you know, so, so much. And uh, and I did. I pulled it off. Yeah, you certainly did once again. But yeah, just to just to, to get the timeline right, obviously after the Rafael Deval fight, you know, you moved up in weight. And again, this is where the Peter Buckley rematch comes in. This time again, Buckley retires on his stall with a shoulder injury. But there's a pattern. I mean, the first time you boxed Peter Buckley after... Um, after after you won the after after you lost the fight um, before that obviously losing the title you became a world champion five months later now the second time you boxed Peter Buck- Buckley after yeah. after losing a fight you know you you become world champion yeah. just one month later I'm starting to think Peter Buckley and Dudley your brother were some kind of good luck charms <laughs> <laughs> well, well you know Peter Buckley paid me a lovely compliment I read somewhere that he said of everybody that he ever fought he said he thought I was the the most accurate, I think, the uh, hardest puncher. So, which proves testament to my sort of technique, really. I used to pride myself on just doing the basic things right. So, it's a lovely compliment. And um, I do respect Peter Buckley immensely because the amount of fights that guy's had is, is, boy, I could never do it. Yeah. You know, he made, he made, you know, all right, he was a habitual loser, but that was his job. That was his life. That was his living. You know, he'd fight, he'd fight you at like a day's notice. He's one of those guys. But he was, he was actually a very decent amateur boxer, you know. He beat, he beat Mark Tibbs in the amateur. I don't know if you're aware of that. He beat Mark Tibbs in the amateur, in the amateurs. It was, it was, yeah, it was a very decent amateur. Uh, Peter Buckley was touted for big things in the amateurs, but, you know, Amateur boxing and professional boxing are two different sports. Well, one's a sport and one's a business. So, mm. you know, maybe he wasn't really cut up yeah. for, the, uh, for the pros. Yeah. But, um, no, I just, you know, I, I thank God for Peter, for Peter Buckley or fighters like him that allowed me to progress in my career and gave me confidence in beating those guys and, and moving on. Yeah, I boxed Peter Buckley um, a couple of times. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was, you know... He's a good guy. Like I I've said, got a lot of time for him. Like I say, he had the 300 fights. He was only ever stopped 10 times, and it was to you twice, two of those 10 times. Um, he's definitely an un, an unsung hero. But, um, yeah. you know, that just touching on that Benavidez win, obviously, you know, you outpointed him over 12 rounds at the Lewisham Theatre. When you became a three-weight yeah. world champion there, and obviously even to this day in Britain, only three men have ever achieved this. Um, obviously, Ricky yeah. Burns being the most recent. What did that feel like? Yeah. Because that is a new level of making history. You're not just a world champion once or twice. This is it, you know, to, to be on a such a short list like that. It must have meant a hell of a lot. Well, you know, I've, I I know quite a lot of other world champions, you know, first name basis, and some of the guys they pay me the really they pay me lovely compliments. Like Nadim Hamid paid me a lovely compliment. He once said to me, well, recently he said to me, he said to me, I said to him, I said to him, Naz, I said to him, what's it like being undisputed world champion? Because that's what he was. He was in a phenomenal fire. He said, do he said, um, he said, he said it's a lovely feeling. He said, but I don't know what it is to win world titles in multiple weight divisions, three weight divisions. And I just thought, yeah, that's that's quite a genuine thing to say. I mean, I, I don't know what it is to be undisputed, but he doesn't know what it is to, to have moved up in weight divisions. So I just think to myself, I'm so privileged to have had the people that I've had around me, and like my coach, Colin Smith, Dudley, obviously, Mickey Duff, who's the absolute catalyst in the whole of my career, uh, you know, if it wouldn't have been for Mickey Duff, nobody else could have done with me what he did, to be honest with you. Frank Warren didn't have the experience, I don't think, at that point, to manoeuvre me 
got me the right kind of fights and, you know, made me into a three-eight world champion. And there wasn't anybody else on the scene that could have done that with me at the time that had television that could have took a chance with me. So um, I'm in quite a privileged position, really. Because um, it's not only, you know, many, you know, other, other more well-known fighters have tried it. Chris Eubank tried it. Nigel Ben, I think, tried it. But, you know, they, they never managed to pull it off. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm so proud of myself. Um, I can't not be. No, you can't not be. You definitely can't, especially where you came from. Um, you know, it's, 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 an, it's an amazing achievement. But obviously, you, you touched on it earlier on in the interview. Um, you, you mentioned about a fight where you'd lost but thought that you'd won. I'm guessing it must have been this one against Daniel Jimenez just eight months later. A majority decision over 12. Looking back, I'm guessing you definitely felt like you should have got the nod that night. I thought I nicked it. I thought I nicked, I thought I just, I thought, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to sound like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to sound like uh, I expected a hometown decision, but if they'd have given me the nod on that night, I'd have took it. Yeah. I'd have took it all day long. I don't really, I, I can't even, you know, I, I, I got, I did, I, he did put me down with a body shot, actually. And, you know, that's obviously what swung it in his, in his favour, in my opinion. But I still think I just nicked it. Yeah. I think it's the only fight in my, in the whole of my career I think, I, I think, like I say, if they'd have given me the nod in the wing, I'd have took it all day long, you know? Uh, but anyway, listen, it's history now. It's gone. He's never coming back. He went away. He came over here he, and took took my title, went back to Puerto Rico with it, you know, made a couple of good defences, I'm told. I've never actually seen him fight um, after after our fight. So, um, you know, like I say, it's, it's one of them things that, it's one of them fights. It's, it's the only fight in my career that I think Actually, I actually regret losing, you know? I regret it. I, you know, um, I don't know what else I could have done right, but if I'd have got a decision on that night, like I say, I think I would have just I'd have gone, thank you very much, I'll have that one. Yeah. No, he went on to box um, Marco Antonio Barrera. He lost his title to him, obviously. But um, yeah, but yeah, you know, I'd have beaten Barrera. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have done him, mate. <laughs> After the Jimenez fight, though, you know, three wins against John Davison, Marcelo Rodriguez, and Mark Hargreaves, and then you you did try for number four up at Feather, um, Steve Robinson yeah. for the WBO World yeah. Featherweight title. But yeah, just yeah. perhaps a little step too far now. Looking back, bridge too far, and also. I think that I never really believed I was a world-class featherweight. Mm. I believed in every fight I had previous, flyweight, bantamweight, super bantamweight, I, I believed I was world-class. But I lacked the confidence going into the Robinson fight that I was actually a world-class, legitimate featherweight. Um, we, I, I met Steve Robinson after, I think, after he, after he stopped... Um, um, uh, what's that kid's name? Uh, Sean, what was it? Sean's, uh, what's the guy's name? What's the kid from St. Albans? going to test me here. I forget his name. I forget the kid's name. Sean Murphy. Okay. After he stopped Sean Murphy, I met Steve Robinson. I was at, I was at that fight. And uh, I was doing some uh, analytic stuff with ITV, actually. They asked me to come and do a thing. And I sat down next to me at Ringtone. It was like a welterweight sitting next to a, sitting next to a bantamweight. He was he was fucking huge. I thought to myself, shit, how does he make the weight? He's got to be struggling. 
I got half a chance because he was just so big. And I thought, well, I had half a chance. But like I say, I, in essence, I look back now and I think, you know, I wouldn't have been saying to myself I got half a chance. And any, any fight I had before that, I never saw, I never look at it and think, oh, you know, I've got half a chance of winning. I was either going to win or I wasn't going to win. I, I was as black and white as that, to be honest with you. Um, but anyway, listen, the Robinson fight, I was going to, I did, I thought I did, I was doing okay. I did okay for about six rounds. And then at the end of the seventh round, I sat down. I, I was just going through a divorce at this time as well. Mm. And I sat down at the end of the seventh round and I can remember seeing the judge's face right in my face saying to me, Mr. McKenzie, this is what's going to happen in the divorce case I was going through. And my concentration had gone. Right there and then, and my concentration had gone. And I threw a shot, and he slipped it, and he paid me. And then I was so angry, because if they'd have given me like a 15 count, <laughs> I'd, have been, I'd have been okay. 15 seconds later, I was right as, you know, when I, when I got back down to the changing room, I was as right as rain. You know, I got whizzed. I just winded me so badly, and I just didn't, I just didn't recover, and that was it, really. And that that really signalled the end, I think, of um, my sort of world title aspirations. Yeah, but um, again, sorry, uh, go on. sorry, go on. No, no, go on. No, I'm no, just going to say, you know, I've challenged for four. I've challenged. I've challenged in four weight divisions for four four world championships. That would have been something to really. That would have been quite an elitist thing to do. I don't think. I don't think there'll ever be another British fighter that that can win four world titles in different weight divisions. I'm not saying I did, obviously I didn't, but I've had the privilege of challenging at least four, four world titles and I've won three out of the four. So, you know, that ain't bad. I, you know, I'll take that. Definitely, definitely. And of course, you know, after that one, obviously you boxed Mehdi Labduni, but again, people probably wouldn't have known back then, but obviously he held a win over Steve Robinson early on in his career as well, didn't he? So, yeah. you know, to lose to a guy yeah, that... Did that had beaten the guy you'd lost to in the previous fight. You know, you lost on points over 12 for the EBU European. And then, um, yeah, just four final fights, three wins. Obviously, um, the final fight against Santiago Alcantara. I mean, that was... Santiago Rojas. Santiago Rojas. Rojas, yeah. yeah. I think he's got two surnames. I think he's got two surnames. Yeah, probably. Double, yeah, maybe probably a bit of a double barrel, but... um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. was it was it tough? Um, was it tough retiring on a loss like that after the career you'd had, Duke? No, no, it wasn't tough. I was, I should never. I, you know, this might sound like an excuse. Well, no, it's not an excuse. I should never have been in there on, on the night. Um, my brother, I'd lost my brother Dudley in '95 uh, to a suicide, and um, I hadn't. I my heart wasn't where it should have been. My head really wasn't where it should have been. I was clutching at straws, and I just the only you know my brother said to me, "Get yourself a day job and get back out there, and you know you'll be fine." And one thing or another, and I was like, "But boxing's all I do. Boxing's all I really know." And you know, promote me for a fight, and he said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do that." And you know, the money was shit. The fight was shit. Everything about the whole process was shit. To be honest with you, not because not because I lost. I just shouldn't. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't. I shouldn't have been there. Yeah. I shouldn't have been there. It's you know, it's as simple as that, really. Um, and when Rojas caught me with a shot, it, listen, I promise you, I've been hit with harder shots in sparring, but he caught me with a shot. He hurt. Don't get me wrong. He, he hurt me. It was more of a buzzing shot than you know. Oh fuck! You know, I'm going over that kind of a shot. And then um, 
when I went down, I looked in, I looked at the referee to take up the count, and I just thought, you know what, you can count to 100, I ain't getting up. <laughs> I've had enough. Nah, I thought, fuck this, I've had enough, mate. I'm going to stay down and just take this one, and that'll be me. And that's pretty pretty much how it was. I just, I quit, basically. I quit. Yeah. So that's not, um, that's not, I don't want to take nothing away from 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 from, from the victory from, from, from that guy, Rojas, yeah. but it just wasn't, I wasn't right. Yeah. I wasn't right. I, I, you know, I'm probably still not right today, to be honest with you. I'm a little bit gone. We're all a little bit gone. <laughs> I think a lot of boxers have got a few <laughs> psychological problems, <laughs> one way or another. But just coming... But, nah, listen, it's... It, yeah, it's what it is. Sorry. No, just coming down to the last couple of questions, really, Duke. I like to ask this yeah, one sure. whenever we, whenever we, um, you know, discuss a, a, an entire career like this. Sure. Um, did you have any regrets looking back now? Have you got any regrets about anything in your career at all? No, no not one. That's the best answer. I got to not. No, nah, I got no. I ain't got a regret. How could I have a regret? I've been, I've been a two-time British champion. I've been a European champion. I've challenged for two European titles. No, I wasn't successful, but and a three-weight world champion. I, I haven't got one regret. No, Not that's one. Good to hear. That is, that's the best way, like I say. And is is there anyone that you perhaps wish you'd have had a chance to fight back in back in your career, but but you didn't? Preferably from your era, but if not any era from history, was is there anyone out there that you'd have liked to test yourself against? Yeah, I'd love to have tested myself against Orlando Canizales. Who was the IBF champion, Gabby's brother? Mm. That's where I wanted to go. That's where I, that's, that's the direction I, I, I wished I had gone. Um, but it didn't happen. So, um, but that was my night. The Kenny Zali's fight was that was my that was my that was my best ever performance, but not my hardest fight. Yeah, it was, it was my best performance. The, the Jacob fight is my hardest fight. But the Canizales fight is my—that's got to be my finest hour. Okay, yeah, that's got to be my finest hour. And and I just want to ask also, you're—I'm um, guessing you know, you're happy in life now with the way, like I say, things have turned out, and what and what you're getting up to now. Obviously, you're doing some work with ITV. You still running your own boxing gym? I've just about to open my a new one. Okay, just about to open, yeah, about to open a new gym in Croydon, my hometown. Uh, can't wait. Really excited about that. I got. I've got three amazing kids. I've got um, I've got a beautiful wife. Uh, I've got a little house that I live in, which I'm really happy with. Uh, life's, I haven't really got any um, any major complaints, to be honest with you. Listen, there's some things that happen in your life that you never forget, both good and bad. Yeah. I'll never forget. I'm never gonna. I have to live with the loss of my brother uh, to the day I die. That's just something I have to live with. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't bring him back. Uh, that's the hard. That's the hard part of my life. But on the plus side, there are more good, good things happening than, than bad things happening, or bad things that have had had happened. So I've got a lot to be grateful for. Uh, I thank God I can open my eyes every morning. You know, have a shit and a shave. Uh, I can still feed myself. I'm not blowing bubbles. <laughs> you know, life. I could, this, life could be a lot worse. So I, you know. I know a lot of boxers that aren't in a good place. I know a lot of champions that are not in a good place. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I would never badmouth anybody and I've got time for everybody. But um, I just wish these guys would, you know, reach out and touch and get the help they need. And um, It's a little bit sad, really, but, what, you know, what can you do? You're only responsible for yourself. Yeah, yeah. 
you know what I mean? It's the only responsible for yourself, so that's all I can be. It's responsible for me. Yeah. Really? And just tell me about this this gym you're opening. Just give me a couple more words on it. Whereabouts in Croydon is it, Duke? Yeah, I'm, I'm opening a new gym in South Croydon. Okay. Like I say, it's like my, like my hometown, Croydon, my hometown. And uh, no, I'm just doing like like boxing technique training. That's what I call it. It's not boxer size because, you know, my boxing is based on traditional boxing. Yeah. But, it's you know, it's, non, it's non-contact, you know, man, men and women, boys and girls, um, you know, but my other gym, I had like sort of like 200 kids coming at the gym. It was just, it was just absolutely fantastic, and uh, just you know, I just it's this is like it's kind of like my way of giving back. I get a lot more personal satisfaction from training the, the youth, the kids, than I do the adults because the kids, you know, all they're looking for is a little bit of leadership. They're looking for someone to look up to, someone to tell them not don't do it this way, try it that way. You show kids combinations now, and they just lose their minds. You know, kid, boys and girls, they. Boxing is very, very fashionable, and I'm, listen, we've got a lot to be thankful for. For great role models, for like, like Anthony Joshua, looks good, talks good, carries himself well. Uh, obviously, media trained. He, he he never says anything out out of, out of sorts or out of character. Um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of these young kids are looking up to him, and then they're going, you know what, I want to try this boxing. And fortunately, maybe it's because of him. I, I don't know, mate. You know, that's why I'm getting such an interest, so many, so much interest from from a lot of young kids. And I can't say I'll never train. Um, I, I can't say I'll never train a boxer. Um, I do. I do a lot of work with my son. I've got a son that's boxing at the minute, and um, I do a lot of work with, with my little Ellis. He's doing really well. So, uh, but I don't know if I'll ever train anybody on a professional level or anything like that. It doesn't, it doesn't really interest me, to be honest with you. Mm. Maybe it's because I know what goes into it. And, you know, I don't, I've never met anybody with that sort of commit, commitment like what I've got, so or like what I had, I should say. So, you know. And when's... Well, you, you can never say never. Yeah, you can never say never for sure. And when when's the gym looking at opening, Duke? Uh, January, oh, yeah, January, January next year. Wicked. Yeah, Jan, Jan 2020. Wicked. All right. Jan 2020. Excellent. And just finally, Duke, if you've just got any closing words at all for our listeners just before we let you go, if you just want to sign out by saying or sending a final little message. Well, I want to wish everybody, a, you know, like a, a happy new year and a, and a happy Christmas. And, you know, don't be afraid to, to, to drink in moderation. Uh, be true to yourself and, uh, and live a happy life. Absolutely. That's all you can do, yeah. Absolutely. Listen, Duke, it has been an absolute pleasure discussing your entire career. Thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful Christmas yourself and an even better New Year. Hope to speak to you soon. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate that. Okay, now it's time for part two on this week's show. No real news to go over, just the the small fact that um, it's just basically been confirmed once again. Um, Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury, the rematch set to take place February 22nd. It was a date that, you know, had been talked about for, for for months, really. So we always thought it was going to be on that date. It's just been once again confirmed or reconfirmed or whatever. And yeah, that is going to be the date. So no real, no real point in discussing, you know, too much more about it. That is the date. But let's move on now to the end of year awards for, for, um, Various different things, fighter of the year, stuff like that. We're going to also discuss the ones that our listeners, our followers on Twitter sent in. Um, I'm going to start with fighter of the year. Now, it, it was a little bit confusing because I did my 
top three fighters of 2019. I also did a list for young fighters of 2019. And to be honest, there's um, a couple of them that could have been switched because one of my top fighters of 2019 is is is, is still a young guy. I think he's uh, just turned 22 or 23. So, you know, he could have gone in the young fighters and one of the young fighters could have gone in gone into the fighter of the year. I hope that's not confusing. But anyway, I'm going to discuss here my best KO of the year, favorite KO of the year, uh, best fighter of 2019, best fight of 2019, best young fighter, best upset, and best uh, British fighter and prospect of the year, most improved fighter, stuff like that. So here we go. Let's start with the, the juicy one, I suppose. Let's start with fighter of the year. Um, Ayaz, I'm going to come to you first on that one, actually. My fighter of the year has to be Saul Canola Alvarez. And, I mean, it's quite obvious what your answer is going to be to this question. But, you know, what was the best part of his 2019? Obviously, he had a fantastic one. I mean, he fought uh, in 2018, he fought uh, Triple G, Gennady got off in twice. First, getting a draw. Second, beating him on points. Afterwards, yeah, he got, um, he went and unified the division. He went and cl- won the IBF championship belt against Danny Jacobs. Right, okay. So after that, in in May... Come in November time, he stepped um, he stepped up to light heavyweight and knocked out um, Sergei Kovalev to to become a four weight division. Now that is what you call a uh, fighter of the year. He Saul Canelo Alvarez. This guy has not ducked anyone. He's fought everyone from everyone. He's fought every person, and you have to give him credit for that. So for that year, for beating Danny Jacobs, the top fighter, very very good fight, and also beating Sergei Kovalev. A light heavyweight champion who, for me, Saul Canelo should be a 160 pound fighter. So I have to give credit for, for my opinion, Saul Canelo is my fight of the year. Yeah, like I say, a very popular answer there. Um, fighter of the year. This one is from at Oscar Cortez 30. I don't think I've ever interacted with him before, but anyway, he sends in fighter of the year Canelo. Um, Ricey underscore SUFC, he sends in. Fighter of the Year. He's given it to Tiafimo Lopez. Yeah, definitely an argument for that one there. Um, Luigi Pelosi, he says Canelo for Fighter of the Year. Um, Tuba TJ, shout out to Tuba, Tuba TJ um, in Hawaii. Likes to play the tuba. Got a Box Hard Podcast t-shirt shipped out to him. And um, he sent us a cracking picture with it with it on, by the way. He has said Fighter of the Year, Naoya Inoue, definitely there, um, thereabouts. Um... Nathan Muse, he says Josh Warrington, but not sure how his calendar works out, but he's flying. Definitely, but I don't think he's had the best 2019 at all. I mean, he's had the, the real close fight with Kid Galahad. Um, that one could have gone either way. And, of course, he beat that Sofian Takuchi. He, he just annihilated him, and he was really no no great shakes. Uh, yeah, I think that's it for that one. But, yeah, for me, like I said, I've given a top three. I'm going Canelo, number one, for sure. He gets the uh, the number one spot for me. I mean, I didn't really give Jacobs much of a chance against him when they boxed earlier on in the year in May, but that's just because I know how good Canelo is. Um, you know, but Jacobs, whether you like it or not, is one of the best middleweights in the world, and Canelo beat him, in my opinion, with relative ease. And then, of course, like we say, he moved up in weight. And let's be honest, he shouldn't he shouldn't ever be boxing at one seven five. He's only five foot eight, and he got in there against one of the hardest pound for pound punchers in the sport, and he didn't even get rocked, he didn't even get hurt, and he managed to knock the champion out. So for me, that was super impressive, and that is what just puts him head and shoulders above the rest of the fighters. Um, 
In second place, I've gone with Naoya Inoue. You know, he destroyed Emmanuel Rodriguez in just two rounds. That was super-duper impressive, honestly. That was absolutely unbelievable, that win there earlier on in the year. And he didn't really look a monster when he boxed Nonito Donaire, but he still answered a lot of questions that night. He ticked a lot of boxes, and he gave us one of the fights of the year. And actually, I'm going to get on to my fights of the year. I'm going to just spoil it now. That was my fight of the year right there. He dominated a legend in Nonito Donaire, and of course, he became the World Boxing Super Series champion. And in third place, the bronze medal, I'm giving it to Tiafimo Lopez. Again, I, I've, I've got two lists. I've got young fighters of the year and I've got fighters of the year I I um he could have been in either one you know I've I've kind of the young fighters of the year are just a, a little notch down so I've rather than put him at the very top of that one in first place I've decided to put him as third out of everything at all categories um you know young fighters old fighters whatever I've put him right up there. So number three for me, Teofimo Lopez. He boxed four times in 2019. He was very, very active considering the opposition he faced. Obviously knocked out Diego Magdaleno. Um, he knocked out Edis Tatley. He got some stick for going the distance against the undefeated Japanese fighter um, Nakatani, who is still a bit of an unknown quantity. He's a tough, tough guy. And then, of course, he capped his year off by winning the IBF world title in devastating fashion by destroying a solid, legit fighter in Richard Comey and that just doesn't happen to Richard Comey so for me he is super super special um yeah that's my fighters of the year moving on now to the young fighter of the year I know I as you didn't really um focus on that too much so I'm gonna just fill in fill in the gaps here my favorite young fighter of the year number one for me Emmanuel Navarrete you know he he was gonna be my third um, on, on the fighter of the year, but I decided to switch him from third place in fighter of the year and put him to first place of young fighters of the year because he's still a young guy. Tiafimo Lopez, I gave that third spot and knocked him off the top of the young fighters of the year. Um, this young fighters of the year thing, by the way, is for fighters under 25 years of age. But like I say, Navarrete, you know, he sprung to notability after dethroning Isaac Dogbay in 2018. The rematch took place in May of 2019. So he got started in his year quite late, in, in the fifth month of 12, um, you know, in May. And he, you know, was able to repeat the dominance. And actually, this time, you know, he forced Dogbay's corner to throw the towel in in the very last round. So he closed the book there on the on the Dogbay saga. And after that, he went on to have three more fights in 2019. He stopped... Francisco de Vaca in three rounds, a guy who was unbeaten in 20. He then became the first man to stop Juan Elorde, a Filipino fighter who had been on a on an almost eight-year win streak. And then he finished the year by beating and becoming the first man to stop Francisco Horta. You know, his opposition wasn't the greatest, but from May to December, he boxed four fighters and stopped them all. And three of them within just four rounds. It's crazy to think that he's still only 24 years of age, Navarrete. I'd love to see those unifications with the likes of Daniel Roman and Ray Vargas. They need to happen in 2020, hopefully. Um, in second place, though, I've given it to Mario Barrios. Three fights he had this year. A knockout against Richard Zamora. Nothing too impressive about that one, I guess, in retrospect. Um, the next fight, a KO against Juan Velasco in just two rounds. we got to remember, Velasco went eight rounds with Regis Progre before being knocked out, but he was able to have a lot of success against Progre, and that made the Velasco-Barrios fight a possible banana skin for Barrios, but no, he absolutely destroyed Velasco, and then of course, to cap it all off, he boxed Batir Akhmadov, who was a real good amateur, Barrios 
his performance that night was just incredible. It was another fight of the year contender that a lot of people are forgetting because we had so many brilliant fights this year. Um, he started great in the fight. He scored an early knockdown. Akhmadov set a crazy pace in the mid-rounds and was probably on his way to win the fight. And then a vital knockdown in the final few seconds of the last round for Barrios probably just about swung the scorecards in his favour and he became the WBA world champion at just 24 years of age. He's had a crack in 2019. And finally... In third place, Young Fighter of the Year. I've given it to Brandon Figueroa. A very active year. Um, you know, four fights. He started the year off by destroying Moises Flores in two rounds. Flores had never been stopped. He only had one loss, which was on points to the established and unified world champion, um, Daniel Roman. He then beat Yonfres Pareo for the interim WBA world title. You know, he stopped Parejo there when, when former world champions like Ryan Burnett and Zanat Zakhanov couldn't do it. And then he boxed Javier Chacon and knocked him out in four rounds. Quicker than Isaac Dogbe and Jamie McDonald could do it. And remember, like I say, he's only 22 years of age. He, he just turned 23 about three days ago, something like that. And, you know, his full fight of the year was was against Julio Seja. Seja was beating Rogondo in his fight before this one, before getting stopped by Rogondo. So a very, very good fighter. Who, apart from Lomachenko, by the way, has ever been, been out boxing Rogondo? Well, this guy was, and then he got stopped. But Seha came into this fight against Figueroa, which was supposed to be at 122, super bantamweight. He came in at super featherweight, two weight divisions too heavy. Brandon Figueroa, crazily enough, still went ahead with a fight. It ended in a split draw, so he wouldn't have been happy about the result. But still, uh, a remarkable 2019 for such a young warrior with a lot of heart and a lot of promise, Brandon Figueroa. So he gets my third place. Um, British fighter of the year, Ayaz. I'm going to come to you on that one. Who's your British fighter of the year? Of the year, there's only has to be one person, Josh Taylor, because yeah. this person, Josh, Josh Taylor, the reason why he entered the World Boxing Series and beat every single fight he has had. For me, he's used the unified lightweight division champion and light welterweight. But what I gotta say, I gotta give him credit because he's fought on everyone and he's beaten all, all the top fighters. Yeah, I'm going to give that one to Josh Taylor as well. It's, it's, it's clear. It's, it's head and shoulders above anything else any other fighter in Britain has done this year. Again, he could have been right up there actually in the fighter of the year list, but I've given a little bit of shine to some guys that perhaps wouldn't have got a mention and won't get a mention on other um, on other platforms or whatever. But yeah, Josh Taylor, you know, he won the World Boxing Super Series. He only had two fights, so he wasn't that active, but he beat two undefeated world champions in those two fights. Both fights were brilliant fights. Both wins have now catapulted him right to the top of the division. And for me, he is the number one fighter at 140. Some will say Jose Ramirez, of course, but until the fight happens... Or, or even if the fight doesn't happen, Josh Taylor, for me, um, absolutely smashed it. And he's probably our best fighter in Britain, actually. So a brilliant 2019 for him. Um, prospect of the year. I'm going to quickly fly through this one. I'm wondering if I ask this to anyone else, actually. Um, oh, Ricey underscore SUFC says Diego Pacheco. That's an interesting one. Um, very interesting. There's loads and loads and loads of people to choose. I'm surprised he went with him. Um, prospects, someone, uh, yeah, Tuba TJ went with Dubois, if he can still be considered a prospect. Um, if not, he'd give it to Effie Jagba. Yep, that's, that's a good shout there. Um, 
yeah, I think that's it, really. Um, my prospect of the year, it's only one guy. I mean, it's it's only one guy, clearly for me. Virgil Waltis Jr., in my opinion, he's on another level. Head and shoulders above the rest of the prospects. Four wins this year, four KOs. He's now 15-0 with 15 knockouts. That 100% KO ratio has remained intact. He's four wins. I mean, Jesus Barayan, he made the Mexican quit on his stool after five rounds. His best win was probably in the fight after that. Um, you know, he became the first man to stop Maurizio Herrera. It only took him three rounds. You've got to remember, Herrera's been the distance with guys like Hank Lundy, Frankie Gomez, Danny Garcia, Saddam Ali, Mike Alvarado, Jose Benavidez Jr., Ruslan Provodnikov. That was a proper statement there, in my opinion, for Ortiz Jr. to get him out of there. His next win came against former world title challenger Antonio Orozco. Unified world champion Jose Ramirez, who we just mentioned, had beaten Orozco on points, but Ortiz was able to stop him in six rounds. He had him down three times in the fight. And then, of course, his final win of 2019 was a knockout over Brad Solomon. He became the first man to stop Solomon. It took Ortiz just five rounds. And believe me, if there's any any betting shop at all that will take a bet for Ortiz to become a world champion by 2021, put your house on it, my friends, because that is a dead certain, in my opinion. This guy is real legit. Um, most improved fighter, I've given it to John Ryder. I mean, I didn't ask the listener, the the listeners or Twitter about it, and I didn't really give it too much thought, to be honest, but I think it has to be John Ryder. T- only two fights in 2019, but a knockout against a solid prospect in Bilal Akawi on the Canelo Jacobs undercard. Um, again, Akawi was being tipped to be a, a real one to watch in the future, perhaps a future world champion, and he absolutely smashed him to pieces. And then he arguably beats Callum Smith, who many regarded before the fight as the best super middleweight in the world and again you know this is a guy in John Ryder that got knocked out at British title level once upon a time he has come on leaps and bounds and is the most improved fighter in world boxing so a big shout out to John Ryder um, and I've, I've given us a, a second place on this one as well I've not given a third place but the second place goes to Jamel Herring you know it's great to see such a good guy become a world champion this year in 2019 he has suffered a couple of losses but since teaming up with um, with the Terence Crawford training team like you know guys like Red Spikes and Brian McIntyre he's totally changed as a fighter and he boxed out of his skin to win the the, the title against Masayuki Ito um he was a big underdog and then of course in his first defense he defended against Lamont Roach Jr um who was an undefeated fighter a guy who had a good amateur career as well so Jamel Herring's 2019 was a real feel-good story and hopefully he continues things in 2020 and he continues in the same manner because he wants those big fights Believe me, and I'd love to see him over here in the UK, actually. Um, yeah, so that's that one. Uh, mm, let's go with upset of the year now, guys. I'm going to come to you on that. We all know where, we all know where that upset, we all know where that's going to be, that one. is when uh, Andy Reese Jr. upset the whole odds and beat Anthony Joshua and knocked him out, uh, stop, got the fight stopped in his eight run. That, that's the biggest upset. That's, that's, like, that's like the biggest upset since uh, when uh, Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson. So everyone knows that that was one of the that was the biggest upset I've seen so far of 2019. So far, well, that's the end of 2019, obviously. But um, yeah, Ruiz beating Joshua. Ricey underscore SUFC goes with that. Ruiz versus Joshua one. That's from Luigi Pelosi. Um, Ruiz versus Joshua one. That's from Tuba TJ. Uh, I think I think Nathan Moose has also gone with Ruiz, and yeah. 
pretty much everyone went with went with uh, Ruiz there. Um, did anyone else say that one? Just trying to look through these. It's getting a bit confusing. They're all jumbled up. Um, yeah, I think that is... Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Someone else at Oscar Cortez 30. He also went with that one. Yeah, everyone's going with that. You have to. You have to go with that, to be honest. I mean, you know, <laughs> to think that Andy Ruiz Jr. had boxed five weeks prior to the fight. He boxed... Um, he boxed... What's the guy's name again? Um, I think he made him quit on his stall. What's his name again? Uh, D- Dimitrenko. Yeah, Alexander Dimitrenko. He beats him on an undercard, and five weeks later, he's in the ring, Madison Square Garden, against Anthony Joshua, you know, he, he only had a, a real limited amount of time to get ready for the fight, and just the way it played out, I mean, you know, it was such a dramatic, dramatic fight, you know, um, obviously he got dropped, he got back up, we didn't do an, an award for round of the year, but that would have probably been the best round of the year, where he got dropped and then got back up and dropped Joshua, it was just an unbelievable fight, and um, it's a shame the rematch was such a bad one, you know, in terms of the entertainment value, but yeah, that that has to be it, but also I'm going to give a, a little uh, mention also, a fight that not many people are, are mentioning, um, can't remember who said this one, but yeah, definitely this, this fight here, the 2016 Olympic gold medalist Rabisi Ramirez turned pro um, on, on on August the 10th, I think I was in the States actually at the time, and he boxed on an undercard, I think it was, um, it was in Philadelphia near where I was, and um, he boxed Adan Gonzalez who had a record of 4-2 and two with two draws, and he was able to actually uh, score the split decision over four rounds, so a loss on his pro debut for the gold medalist there, Rabisi Ramirez, and he was a sensational amateur, so for him to lose like that, um, you know, to a guy he's supposed to completely walk over, that was such a shock, he was also on the canvas in the very first round, so that one deserves a real shout as well, but just for the, you know, for the for the magnitude of, of the biggest fight, you know, one of the biggest fights of the year, Joshua and, and Ruiz, you know, being for the heavyweight title, and stuff like that, it gets much more, you know, much more magnification, if you like, you know, we're all looking at that one under the, under the microscope, um, what have we done, so that's the young fighters, that is the best British fighter, that's the prospects, that's, uh, the most improved fighters, we are now left with, um, yeah, the best KOs of 2019, see, this is one where I'm kind of struggling a little bit, I find it hard to, to 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 really choose one. There's a few. Um, I like I liked I actually really liked Archie Sharp's knockout against Declan Geraghty in a fight he was losing, and then of course Declan Geraghty walked right into a to, to a left hook and Archie Slop Archie Slop Archie Sharp absolutely slept him. That's what I was trying to say. It was a brutal knockout that one. Obviously Sam Maxwell when he was boxing against that journeyman I think it was, and the journeyman had dropped him, and the journeyman was dancing around and you know just showboating and all sorts of things like that, and then he gets knocked out. I think it was in the last round by Sammy Maxwell. Unbelievable knockout that one. Real satisfying. Um, Wilder vs Brazil again. That one was sent in by a lot of people. Tuba TJ sent that one in. Um, Canelo's knockout over Alvarez at Oscar Cortez says. Um, Ricey SUFC also gave it to Wilder. Um, he says the, the 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 knockout. Both of his knockouts this year were were insane. The Ortiz was was special after losing every round. Um, who else sent theirs in? Just give me one sec here. Uh, Nathan Muse says, 
Charlo versus Kota. Do you know what? I can't even remember watching that one. I can't even remember that one. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to watch that back. I really do apologise there, Nathan Moose. I, I, I'm sure I watched it, but I've just completely forgotten about it. Um, Tuba TJ says, yeah, KO of the year, Wilder over Brazil. I think I said that. Luigi Pelosi, Wilder against Brazil as well. Um, yep, yeah, Rice, SUFC, Wilder on Brazil. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the way he set it up. It, it, the, the one thing that I... It was a brilliant knockout, but the one thing that kind of... Um, that I'm not giving it all the credit for is he set it up so clearly, like he just he just found him with the jab. It was just a touching jab, just to me- measure that distance, and it was a one-two straight down the pipe. And Brazil almost saw the shot coming, but he was frying his own shots. I think at the same time, and he just had to kind of blink and go, "Oh crap, it's gonna hit me!" Bang, and that was it. And he really did fold him in in, in two right there. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely a brilliant knockout. But I I like the shock knockouts, like Archie Sharp's one against. Um, against Declan Garrity, um, Sammy Maxwell's one against the, the guy that he fought. But for me, my knockout of the year, again, we've probably we've probably left out so many. So if you didn't send it in, shame on you, because we needed we needed a, a lot more variety sent in, but not, not that many people sent theirs in. But I've gone with Chisora against Spilka. That was a brutal knockout right there. Um, Ayaz, I know what one you're going with. Yes, I'm going with Daniel Dubois versus Fujimoto, which happened last week. That knockout was disgusting. The way that right hand dropped in Fujimoto right on the floor, it reminded me of like Dion Deontay Wilder for Dominic Brazil. But I think this was more this. I, I thought this was more for this was more for dangerous knockout than the Deontay Wilder one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, brutal one. Like I say, I was there for that one. Um, but yeah, a good good knockout. Like I say, both men were exchanging right hooks, and Dubois got there first. You don't hook with a hooker, they say. And finally, getting on to the best fights of 2019. Just before we wrap it all up, um, I have a list of brilliant fights for 2019. But let's start with the ones that were sent in from our listeners slash Twitter followers. This one's from at Oscar Cortez 30. He says. Oh, this is a good one, actually. This is a really good one. I almost forgot this one here. There's been so many this year. Like I say, we've been spoiled. But he says, Triple G against Derevianchenko. That was a brilliant fight, Ayers, if you remember correctly. Um, Ricey, uh, Ricey SUFC says, Spence versus Porter. It was an absolute belter, along with Inoue versus Donaire and Taylor versus Progre. Uh, I think you'll, you'll struggle to find better than those for fight of the year. Definitely. I agree with all three of those ones there. Um, this one comes in from at Cole Smith 611 he says Davies versus Ritson yeah that was a great that was a great great fight as well um, Nathan Muse says Taylor versus Progray Tuba TJ says Pacquiao versus Furman that's an interesting one actually Tuba um that that is an interesting one there because I remember that being a being a good fight. Obviously, Furman started off really slow, but then he came came into it in the later rounds. Furman, honestly, so underappreciated. I really like Furman. I've had a soft spot for him for a long, long time. Lu- Lu- Luigi Pelosi says J Rock versus versus um, v- versus Jarrett Hurd. That was a brilliant fight again. Brilliant, brilliant fight. Um, Rice, he also says Inoue versus Donaire. Yeah, for me, I mean, I've got a list here. Taylor versus Progre, definitely one of them. Hurd versus Williams, for sure. A lot of people forgot about this one, but Daniel Roman against TJ Doheny. What a fight that was. Obviously, Joshua Ruiz won. Donaire versus Inoue, for me, that was fight of the year. That's probably fight of a few years. I loved that fight there. Um, Spence versus Porter as well. Like I say, Triple G versus Derevianchenko. Hooker versus Ramirez was okay. Perhaps I'm forgetting some eyes. 
so I need you to help me here. But also, Gavozdik versus Batabiev was a brilliant fight as well. I've got one fight, and I know you might disagree with me, but you know when Tyson Fury fought Otto Wallin? Oh, yes, really? The cut. It was because of the cut. Yeah. And obviously, of that, 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 that seemed interesting of that fight. But it was it was a good fight. I wouldn't say fight of the year. For me, fight of the year has got to be Taylor versus Progress because I think that was the best fight of the year. I think that year had that lived up up to the expectations. It was a very good fight, and obviously, um, obviously it was the British man as well. And like I said, that was a brilliant fight. But there was also who was uh, who was it? Oh yes, Dillian White versus Oscar Rivas. Yeah, that was a good fight. That was definitely a good fight. Like I say, there's been so many this year. I'm, I'm trying to find a list somewhere of loads of the best ones because there's 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 been loads. I feel like we're we're leaving loads out. Just trying to have a look here. Um, there's a list I've found online here. Jarrett Hurd, Julian Williams, Anthony Joshua, Andy Ruiz, Adam Kalnacki versus Chris Ariola. I didn't actually see that fight. I can't believe it. I didn't actually see that fight. I think we had Adam Kalnacki on the show like the next week or whatever, but I actually missed that one there. But yeah, there was lots and lots and lots of good fights this year. But for me, Inoue Donaire, you know, that was just a brilliant, brilliant fight. But again, it's not too late. We can still discuss any late entries if you have any. Send them in to us on Twitter so you can, you know, you can cover any that we've missed. I mean, we've talked about British fighter of the year. We've talked about the the fights of the year, but if we've missed any good knockouts or any good fights, then send them in, and we will mention them on next week's show. Um, by the way, next week's show will be out on the Wednesday rather than the Thursday, so look out for that one next Wednesday, um, which I believe is the eighth, I think, or the seventh. I can't remember, but um, yeah, that's it. So thank you all for listening to this week's show once again. That is it for the uh, for the. For, for, for everything really on this show that wraps everything up thank you all for listening and once again for the last time happy new year